This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Julie Bennett, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Julie was born in New Zealand and moved to Australia when her father joined the Australian Opera Company. She has worked in libraries as a finance journalist and an editor. Her debut novel, The Understudy, set in Sydney in 1973, the year the Opera House opened. It takes us deep into the underbelly of Sydney's theatre world as the lead of the opera goes missing on opening night. Drama. There's always drama in opera, isn't there? (laughs) Oh, yes, there always is. I mean, it's the music, it's the passion, it's the story itself. It's always, yes, highly dramatic. I love it. (laughs) So you've got an interesting career. I mean, how does one go from really being in the arts to a finance journalist? Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? So um, I I loved all of that, all of that um, theatre world. But when I left school, I decided I loved books as well. You know, I was in love with books. And um, I decided that I would, rather than go straight to university, I was young, I wanted to get married. So I went and worked in libraries and did a library technician course. And then I, I worked in libraries for quite a long time and I really enjoyed it. But then I thought I wanted to do what was had always been my passion, which was writing. So I went back to uni at 29 and um, did a degree in um, arts and then I took some specialisations in um, journalism and video production and media studies and those sorts of things. And then when I graduated, I had the the first choice available to me, or not the first choice, but there were a few choices and they were all in finance, in fact. So there was a lack of finance journalists and I kind of learned um, finance journalism on the, I was a journalist first and then I learned about finance. And it's, it's interesting, but I'm I really liked that too, you know, I, and I remember sitting down at my first print job, which was in trade media, and, and I couldn't believe that I was going to get paid to write because I just loved writing. It was just I had that, you know, there's only a few moments in my life where I've been overwhelmed by something professionally, you know, and I just felt professionally overwhelmed that someone was going to pay me to write. I just loved it. And then it grew on. And then I worked as a journalist for a few years and then I launched my own PR business in finance. So yeah, the finance has sort of followed me. Not sure how it happened, probably accidental. Um, <laughs> now, is that a dog I can hear? It about? is. is that's all right. get- no, no, that's fine. Uh, who have we got there? That's Riley. He's yeah. our, our <laughs> he's across, um, because I've said his name, he's talking now. Yeah. He's across cattle Kelpie. 
and he's he's absolutely gorgeous but he doesn't like to be shut out no I can imagine yeah Yeah. well I just wanted to make sure that the listeners knew it was your dog and not mine yes my dog sorry guys (laughs) mine is naughty as well but he's not here with us today John so your father tell me about coming to Australia and what your father did with the Australian Opera Company okay so my dad was a tenor in the chorus he came I think he came over and he sang in one of the leading competitions in the late 1960s and at the same time or shortly afterwards I mean I was only a kid so I might have got this wrong sorry dad if I do but um, he auditioned for the opera company at the time and they of course were preparing to sing in the Sydney Opera House they already had a company and their company had been going for some time and um, ultimately he was successful and he got a telegram saying please come to Australia and so he went and mum and we children followed Um, about a year later I think of course dad came home and back and home and back and yeah so he sang with the Australian Opera Company which later became Opera Australia for 30 years yeah so I mean that's an unusual occupation for a parent Mm. right so did, did it involve moving around and Talk to me. I mean, obviously there's been influence because you've written a book largely yes. based on that. But talk to me about the influence of growing up with a father as an artist and a singer. <laughs> yeah, so the first, so I think I was about three when I saw my first sort of operetta experience, which was um, The Land of Smiles by Franz Liha. And uh, I just fell in love at that moment. I fell in love. It was just gorgeous, you know. And so I was three or four perhaps five, but I don't think so. And um, it was just the world, you know, you're just drawn into this world, which for me was alive. I really believed in that world, you know, that it was really happening. And But it does kind of, uh, I only realised this quite recently when writing the book, it does give you an experience that other people don't have. So you well, understand. it's highly unusual to start with. Yeah, and your understanding yeah. of the world is a little bit um, different. So, for example, you know, that set, so the set is all important and you're drawn into that that world. So the outside world doesn't exist. So I think um, sometimes I've had this kind of like, well, this is the this is our set and this is where we are and this is, you know, and outside that, yes, there's a bigger world, but it doesn't play on this, on this stage, you know, so <laughs> it's quite interesting. And Dad did travel around a bit. So in the early days they went to Melbourne and I think Brisbane and Canberra, but later on it was more concentrated Sydney and Melbourne. He was away for many months of the year in Melbourne and mum and we children stayed at home. In the beginning it was a bit of an adjustment period, but as time went on it was just the way our lives were. You know, it's just it's dad's job and that's what, how we operated as a family and, you know, it was, it was always a sort of, it felt a little bit like departures and homecomings, you know what I mean? So um, departures were a bit sad, and and then but homecomings were fabulous, you know. And Dad would bring <laughs> bring us presents from this fabulous world of Melbourne, you know. And it could be something like fabulous chocolate, or it could be the alarm clock that he bought while he was down there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was wonderful. Also, he would have been very fortunate as an opera singer to get a full time job. I mean, because that wasn't you know, easy either. You know, I fortunate, yes, and. I hope this doesn't sound how, the way it's going to sound, but also extremely talented. You know, he to get a, a job as a performing opera singer, mm-hmm. I don't know how rare that might be, but I suspect a little rare. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes, to have a full-time job, yes, mm-hmm. as a performer, yes. 
Um, of course, they work really hard in the chorus because they do not one opera but several and they might also be called in for rehearsals and so on. So, What do you mean not one, several, like several at any one time? Yeah, several operas at, at any one time. So he could be. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, he could be maybe in three or more. I don't know the exact number but more yeah. certainly more than one. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then be called in for rehearsals for the one that's going to be coming up or, you know, so they work really quite quite hard, yes. And what about your mum? Was she an artist? <laughs> no, mum, but mum did have a full-time career. And, you know, my mum, when we were little it was part, she worked part-time and then as we got older she worked full-time. But my mum really, she always said to us, they're both still alive today, which is fantastic, you know, because I've been able to talk to them about the book and about the 70s. Mum was the person who said to me, you know, you can become whatever you want to become. You you can do whatever you want to do professionally. You should be whatever you want to be. And the powerful thing, maybe lots of parents say that, I'm not sure, but the powerful thing for me was that I believed her. I believed her. And so that allowed me to take the steps that I wanted to take, the ones I wanted to take, not necessarily the ones I should, you know, but the ones I wanted to take. And I'm just really grateful for the parents that I had. They're fantastic, fantastic. Uh, And does any of the children, do any of you sing? I used to sing and I trained with Dad for a little while. But, you know, singing is very demanding on the body and on your lifestyle. And uh, it requires hours and hours and hours and hours of training and coaching and um, development. Rehearsal. Rehearsal, you know, things like that. So I never really took it. Yes, and I never really took it further than a few of Stedford's. I also had running parallel, I had this love of literature and writing and and that sort of thing. And it was, it just won out a little bit more, you know, the writing was, and writing is also something that you can do at home and, you know, you can do in your own time and you can do anywhere. And so it won. Both forms of, of storytelling, if you like. They are, Cheryl, yeah. they absolutely are. You're yeah. so right. And um, I, you know, I love singing. I'm not, I don't think I'm very good at it anymore. But as I said, it, this allowed me to explore things in, in my own sort of time. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that you wrote about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me that. Tell me where the seed of the idea came from. I believe the seed of the idea began when I was working in a library and I believe one of the librarians said to me, you know, um, you should write, because I was always scribbling, you know, I was always scribbling something. She said, you should write something that's been inspired by your father's background or your family's background in music. And, you know, this is going to sound silly, but I thought, but that's just Dad's job. <laughs> you know, in a way, it's just dad's job. So, who's going to be interested in my dad's job? And then, of course, when I thought about it and I thought about my own experience on stage as a child, I, re- I realized it's extraordinary mm. and exceptional. I'm Absolutely. so lucky. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm yeah. so lucky to have had that experience. And why not? Why not yeah. put that as the, the background? Well, and also, it is a background. I mean, it has been. Opera has been a background for oh, mystique yes. and, you know, yes. intrigue and crime <laughs> yeah. and drama. Yes, so indeed. it kind of works, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. So tell me So tell me about starting to write. Did you, mm-hmm. had you thought about writing a novel? Yes. I, I've, as I think, as I said, I, I was always scribbling, you know, and I remember learning to write as a child. And I thought it was 
amazing. I thought the alphabet was art, you know, mm. the letter A. Oh, my God, what a gorgeous letter. Mm. The letter B, the letter R, the letter S. I, I just thought it was art. I couldn't draw to save my life. But I could certainly draw the characters of the alphabet. I learned to read really quickly. And I remember it was about... Um, I was certainly younger than nine because I was still in New Zealand. So I think I think I was about six, seven, eight, something like that. And I told my mum I was going to write my autobiography. And my mum said, maybe I should get some life experience first. And I went, like, life experience? I'm nearly 10 years old. I've got nearly 10 years life experience, mum. <laughs> Don't you know? Don't you know? I <laughs> know. Very precocious little brat. But, um, but yeah, I just loved writing and I scribbled away um, for years and I wrote a few, you know, very short novels and um, they never really went anywhere. And um, then We I call thought, those practice, Julie. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And then um, one day I woke up and I was in my 50s and I went. That happens, you, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And, you, oh. and I go, are you serious? Yeah. All your life you said you were going to write a novel. Where is it? Mm. And I just, all I got was, you know, all I felt was I was just getting older. That's all I was getting. I wasn't getting towards my dream of publishing a novel. I was just getting older. So I just gave myself a bit of a smack and said, get on with it. Just get on with it. Yeah. And it took a, it took a while because the very first seed was started when I went to Fiona McIntosh's uh, masterclass. Yes. And you had to prepare, um, I think it was 10 pages, the first 10 pages, and I dashed those off quite quickly. Yeah. And after coming away from that, um, I did write about 30,000 words. And I went to visit my girlfriend in Scotland. And um, she, she was just living at the time. She's domiciled in Australia. And uh, she said, how's your book coming along? I said, oh, I'm quite happy, you know, it's, I've got 30,000 words, so I'm pretty pleased with myself. And she said, that's great. And um, I said, yeah. And then she came back home to live in Australia three years later. She goes, so how's the book going? I go, oh, I'm pretty pleased. I've got 30,000 words. She said, I want a page a day, no excuses. Mm. And so I did a page Sometimes a day. Sometimes you need a deadline. I did a page a day for her, really, and I also yeah. sent five chapters at a time to my parents, and that's how it got done. Yeah. If not for her smacking me around, I might still yeah. be scribbling, you know. And yeah. you based it on a true story. Um, no, it's not a true story. It's um, it's completely uh, fiction. I guess what happens, I'm glad that you think that, though, and a few yeah. people have said that to me yeah. that it seems like it's based on a true story. I mean, it definitely is fiction, I read fiction, yes. but I wondered whether it was based on it. I thought it was, actually. No, yeah. no, no, it's not. It's complete fiction. But I guess when you've lived in the world, you know, you're able to translate that quite yeah. well. Yeah. You know, I lived in the world of opera, and to me writing about it was quite natural and then, uh, being able to have those discussions with dad has been amazing, you know, because yeah. it's like, oh, blah, 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 you know, you can sort out some fine detail. Yeah. And people have been very helpful. You know, I've got a few friends in the opera world, or not opera, actually, theatre, in theatre, and they've helped me, you know, just to finesse those tiny little details. So, yeah. Well, isn't that interesting? I guess it's because um, I felt that maybe because it was authentic, because yeah. you know it so well. Yes. Yes. yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, I do know it well. Mm. And as I said, I had help in, in those areas from dad and from people that I know in that world, yeah. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. What does your dad think of it? Oh, of course he loves it. <laughs> yeah. It's terribly pious. But, you know, my parents, are, I wonder if they'll listen, but my parents are in their 80s and they're just, you know, they read every draft, they read every, even the most confronting bits of it, you know, and, wow, just, just they've just been so great, you know, the whole time. But did, so, did your dad ever say things like, oh, that doesn't happen in opera? You know, that's what I said to him on the very final draft. I said, is there anything in here that you would go, no, nah, that wouldn't happen. And he thought for a long time and he goes, you know, no, it's because this book is really about relationships, you know, and these sorts of relationships and these sorts of things happen across all professions and in all industries. It's just a highly dramatic backdrop, backdrop you know. Yeah. So that was really interesting. So he said, no, it's it, it seemed authentic to him. Yeah. So. Well, there you go. I mean, you know. <laughs> He knew it. Okay, so then at what point did you think you had a novel that was worth publishing? I hope this doesn't sound terrible, but I always thought it. I always thought, you know, when when I reflected on what that librarian had said to me and I reflected on the people I knew who were readers, I thought this is a really compelling backdrop and this is a really compelling story. Haven't we all been the understudy? Haven't we all been Margaret? Yeah. You know, and so... uh, women or readers like to read about how do you overcome these sorts of things? What do you do to get what you want or what do you do to protect what you have? And so I always thought the um, the ideas in it were readable and I always thought that I could take it to a good level. What I um, have been really thankful for is the um, guidance of Cassandra. She's my publisher. She's been fantastic. I mean, it's it's all about... You know, the book was it's, was very was much longer than this, and you know, so she helped me on what what needed to go. Really, you know, it just helped me to shape it a bit more, and, and that's been amazing. That's been I mean, amazing. honestly, the work that editors I, I mean, I often say they are unsung heroes. Really, I mean, mm-hmm. they don't get a lot of credit, but they really mm-hmm. do massage a book. Mm-hmm. And what I think happens with an editor or publisher, if you like, is they have a bird's eye view of yes. your work. And also they're champions. I mean, it's not just you have a whole team of people when you when you yes. write a book and when a book gets taken on who yes. all they want is to make that book better. 
Oh, you know, and that's what I say. Uh, and I, I hope that my team, you know, the people who work on my book uh, understand that I'm just so, I'm not going to be precious about anything because yeah. what do we all want? We want a great book that sells well, you know, like we all want We that. want a good read is what and, we want. And our readers want a good read. And yeah. so we're all in the same, you know, we're, we're all in the same boat. We all want the same thing, a great book that people like and enjoy and, yeah. Hey, so at, at what point did you decide, you? how did you go out? Did you find yourself an agent? I mean, how did you get published? I went to um, Fiona's masterclass, as I said, yes. and then a few a, year, a few years later she had a um, conference, a masterclass conference of people who had sort of graduated from those um, cl- classes. And there were five, I think, publishers, four or five publishers there. So, of course, I thought I have to go because I'd finished the book and um, I thought, well, the next step is getting it published, which I understand is actually the hardest bit. So that's going to be the best option for me to go and meet all of them. So you had, I think there were five publishers and then um, you got to pitch one-on-one with three of them. And I'd actually met Simon Schuster, publisher at the first masterclass. And then um, at the second, they, I'm not sure, Cassandra certainly wasn't there, but anyway, you just pitch for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But then of course you can, you're welcome to go and pitch to, to them because you have their details, et cetera. So it was a good exercise, but I didn't worry too much. Like a lot of the people there were worried about what am I going to say in my pitch and they rehearsed it and I go like, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not rehearsing it even though I only have a few minutes. What I'm going to do is just simply say what the book's about and why they should maybe take a look at it. But okay, I can you remember your pitch? Do you want to? No, because I think I was terrible to be honest. <laughs> because I am telling you, often I ask an author what their book yeah. is about and they can't pitch it. <laughs> I know. It's, I've got better at it, but, uh, you know, I'm, and which is absurd, but I think because I care so much about this, you know, and yes. um, I think I wasn't as good as I could have been, you know, and um but then afterwards, of course, you have the business cards. So then I then I pitched it. And Simon and Schuster were the ones that picked it up. And, you know, it was quite quick after that. It was, I was kind of very surprised because, you know, I know how hard it is. Oh, yeah. And um, Cass just loved it at first sight, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tell us what it, the book's about. Okay. So the book is about, really the book is about Sophie. So Sophie is the understudy to this great star, Margaret Gardner. Margaret's a prima donna and Margaret's about to perform at the opening of the Sydney Opera House in front of the Queen. And just before she's due to go on, she disappears. So Sophie has to step up into the spotlight and perform at the opening of the Sydney Opera House. So the book centres around what's happened to Margaret and how Sophie wishes to take her place. I mean, Sophie never comes right out and says that, but Margaret's missing, so the book's an exploration of where she's gone, but it's also an exploration of how Sophie's trying to progress her career. She wants international fame and fortune. Yeah. I guess that's why I thought it was based on a true story because I often (laughs) think that that must be the story of so many people. Mm. take the, 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 the element out of it of the missing person. Mm. But, I mean, you know, are there people in the opera or in theatre that are always the understudy? Um, and there must I be think, huge complications. I, I think the answer is yes. yes. However, you, you also I have this understanding of this artistic temperament, if you like. Yes. There are yes. Some, people, some people who wish to be stars and there's some people who 
don't really. They just want to sing, you know. So does that situation arise? I think so. The situation that's in my book arises. But some people are just there giving of their art. You know, it, they're not, they don't want to be the star. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but they want to sing. That's mm-hmm. what they want to do. Mm-hmm. They're not on a quest to be the star. So it's very, very interesting. So does that happen a lot? I think there's a lot of competitiveness in opera, and I think there is a lot of competitiveness in many industries and professions. Well, particularly the opera because, I mean, there aren't that many operas. So it's a handful of people that get to have mm-hmm. that opportunity, don't yes, they? Indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And no. Yeah. <laughs> yes and no. Was your father always happy to be in the choir? Uh, the chorus? Um, the chorus, so- sorry, yeah. I think so. Dad, from time to time, had um, little, you know, bits to do in the opera. I think so. I think he was always pleased to be doing what he loved as a profession. As I said, you know, very few people get to do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I think. Yeah. No, I often think about that and I think, you know, all those people that must apply and then really there's just very, very mm-hmm. few positions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and particularly, I mean, you know, what's happened with COVID in the arts? Oh. Devastating. Terrible. 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 Okay, so then you get your book published and uh, how many times do you pinch yourself? I tell you what, it's it's the strangest feeling, you know. On some days I go, oh, yeah, good. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) Other days I go, it's a kind of terror. It's a kind of terror. Oh, my God, I got what I wanted. That's amazing and terrifying. And, you know, I get, I got so wound up in this world of Sophie and Amanda. I just got so that I started to dream about it, you know, but only once it was finished. And as I said to Cass, would have been handy if I could have dreamt about it before. That would have helped me with a lot of plot, you know. <laughs> you become, to me, they're as real as anybody in the street. They become part of you. And so the other feeling about, yay, great, got published, the other part of it is a kind of sadness because I'm not going to be dealing with them on a daily basis anymore and I have to let them go. It's like when your kids leave home, right? You just, yeah. it's great. You're so happy and so thrilled for them and so sad on another level, you know, and I have to say goodbye to them. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I'm excited, but, yeah, yeah. also no, terrifying. I, I understand that. <laughs> so are you writing anything else? Like is this is this yes. the beginning? Yes, I have another um, book to deliver for Simon & Schuster this year. It's um, in the process of being developed by me. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not quite sure where that journey might take me, but it will be in the theatre world probably in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s, which is also a fantastic period in theatre in Australia. So, yes, the, the sort of the gen- genre will be theatre and um, it will be, you know, a, a story about you know, the love and passions and ambitions of the theatre world. So would you call yourself a full-time writer now? I still have my PR business, my financial services PR business, but I'm always writing. So I'm lucky, I'm very lucky that I'm able to work from home and I can do both things and I find it actually really helpful to also be working in um, finance PR because that allows to me to use another set of skills in my head so I found personally it's quite emotional to write a book and it's quite uh, it feels like an extension of yourself and you feel 
is kind of like this hyper-awareness thing. So to, to actually have to settle down and prepare work for clients and to work with clients and to, you know, to know to be ahead of financial services issues uh, and regulation and, and what the government's planning next and all that sort of thing, it requires another headset, which is very helpful because it takes you out of this fantasy. Well, it's kind of almost left brain, right brain, isn't it? Correct. And for me, that works really well because I think when you are so emotionally attached to a piece of work, you can lose perspective. I'm talking for myself, of course. Mm. I can lose perspective. You know, the book is not the only thing in the world. Mm. (laughs) My boys say, we're so glad that it's finished now because, Mum, I'm sorry, all the only conversations you've had with us for the last year have been about the book. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Yeah, so I find it very helpful to have those two things in my life. All right. Well, Julie Bennett, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.